1: To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs, host of the Finding Genius podcast, also uh, Executive Director of the Finding Genius Foundation. A quick note about the foundation before we get started. Uh, We've embarked upon our anxiety and depression massive literature review, which we call the Codex. Uh, The goal is to make a low or no-cost resource for sufferers of depression and anxiety or people that know them. We're going through about 5,000 sources of scientific papers, books, lectures, interviews with people that have depression and researchers, et cetera. So to find out more, go to findinggeniusfoundation.org. And today I have a very special guest, uh, Daniel Jacob Machado. He's a postdoctoral researcher at University of North Carolina at Charlotte. And we're going to talk about uh, SARS-CoV-2 and how he's uh, working you know, with, with COVID. So Dennis, thanks for coming.
2: Thank you, Richard. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Well, good. Well, tell me about, uh, you know, your research before COVID and then, uh, how has it changed?
2: Of course. I am, I am a Brazilian and I did most of my, well, I did all of my undergrad and, and, and graduate studies in Brazil. I am a bioinformatician, phylogeneticist and zoologist, but I started as a marine biologist and it sounds like a lot of change from one topic to another. But in fact, what I was changing throughout the, all that time was understanding how things evolve, how organisms and viruses change over time, and how to categorize them through this discipline that we call phylogenetic systematics. I came to the United States to work at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte in January 2019 under Professor Daniel A. Janey's supervision. And our work is an NIH-supported research on tissue regeneration, and comparative genomics of echinoderms. And therefore, it was originally very far away from, from SARS-CoV-2, coronaviruses, and COVID-19. However, as a response to the COVID-19 pandemic, we all felt like we should try our best to use the skills that we had to try to help in with this situation. Professor Janice has been working with coronaviruses for many years, and I have been working with different tools to understand how things evolve, for many years as well. And we decided to join forces to put together this that became the most comprehensive evolutionary study about the fundamental origins of all coronaviruses.
1: What do you mean? Are you, are you studying how it's been developing or are you looking for the origin of it? What do you mean?
2: So what I mean by fundamental origins or fundamental evolution of coronaviruses is understanding how this family of viruses that is called ortho which includes different genera and different lineages and species of viruses. We want to understand how all of these viruses evolve through time and fundamentally understand where each one of them is coming from, so that can inform us about how to best prevent or try to respond faster to new cases of emergent coronaviruses in the human population before we started our work. So
1: let's speak to the, the current one. You know, it's only recently they've been talking about a variant or two, but from my understanding, you know, there were hundreds of thousands of variants uh, pretty early on. What has been your understanding of COVID, for instance?
2: So in 2019, we understood very well, and we named only one variant, which is called the Wuhan variant. And early genome analysis from that from that variant Indicated that the virus was actually not at initially that in, it, it did not indicated a large diversity of sequences of the virus. That is mainly due to sampling bias and we were still acquiring a lot of genomic data at that point in the end of 2019, beginning 2020. And now we are seeing lots of virus variants of SARS-CoV-2, which is not especially impressive given that rna viruses such as these coronaviruses they do accumulate mutations very fast that means that they they, they accumulate changes in their genome fast this is very well known and, and and we observe that in other types of viruses and therefore it is not specifically surprising that today we see the number of variants that we see today what is what is perhaps con- concerning is that some of those variants seem to lead to more infectious strains of the virus.
1: Yeah, but does infectious correlate with more virulent or is there a trade-off there?
2: It depends. Each, vi- each variant of the virus can be classified in different categories that let us, let us put them into, let's say, boxes according to how interesting they are for us. So we have variants of interest, variants of concern, variants of extreme concern, and in, within those three boxes, we are going to place variants in those three boxes according to their virulence, their, capa- their ability to infect people, the number of copies of the viruses. And of course, mind you, our our research so far involving the origins of this virus does not involve the evolution of those variants specifically. But the question of its fundamental origins, where the virus came from, what were The the, uh, what was the wildlife source of these viruses, and how can we make decisions about ongoing research about coronaviruses as a whole?
1: Well, that all sounds general. So, what does that mean? What do you look for? What elements do you look for in a variant that tells you it's, you know, a a problem or not?
2: Well, I don't. We have ongoing research in our laboratory to understand the different variants of SARS CoV 2. There's other people in the University of North Carolina at Charlotte that are responsible for that type of research. I do have research of my own on that on those questions, but we don't have anything that I can that's ready to be disclosed to the public right away. Instead, my question was how easy, for example, it is for one virus to change from one host to another? Is are those host barriers something that are very hard to overcome, or do coronaviruses frequently change from one host to another? how likely it is for us to experience a novel coronavirus in the future.
1: From what I've heard, like HIV changes within the same host tremendously, very quickly. I mean, do coronaviruses tend to do that too?
2: Yes, there is a, a, a viruses as parasites evolve together with their hosts in a very similar way as viruses evolve with their hosts. We can somehow trace the evolution of the hosts by characteristics of the viruses. But it's very well understood, or people expect when they are studying viruses, that it's hard for a virus that is becoming adapted to a particular host to acquire certain characteristics that allows that virus to jump from one host to the other. Now, what, it, what we are observing in coronaviruses is that it is not that rare for us to see one coronavirus that was adapted to a particular mammal host to jump to a different mammal host. And that happens even in the same species of virus. And that is concerning because that points out towards the possibility, for example, of coronaviruses infecting humans, also start infecting wildlife, and then we having a wildlife repository of those viruses that we have to handle later on. It's also concerning because there is lots of groups of coronaviruses that share certain biological th- characteristics with SARS-CoV-2. And those groups of coronaviruses are numerous and, in fact, hosts that are in frequent contact with humans. Therefore, there is plenty of opportunity for new lineages of viruses to jump from those hosts to humans. Many of those viruses are in groups that are similar, they're phylogenetically or evolutionarily associated with SARS-CoV-2, SARS-CoV and MERS-CoV, which are the three most deadly coronaviruses we know. And therefore, that raises a big red flag. And part of our research is to try to show how important it is to pay attention to that and to fund continuous research so that we can understand how these viruses behave and evolve in those hosts.
1: Including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. I mean, we've been around coronaviruses for, you know, I, don't know, I would say, I think hundreds of thousands of years. Why is it a concern now?
2: Well, coronaviruses and what we call zoonotic events, if I say the word zoonotic event, I mean a a transmission from a virus from a wildlife host to a human host or uh, leading to a human infection. And those zoonotic events in coronaviruses, they are not recent. We've been recording them since 1960s and possibly before that. We know of eight types of coronaviruses that infect humans and these human infections of coronaviruses, we have been detecting them recently, and that's very much associated with our capacity to detect, describe, and identify viruses that infect the human population. So it's very likely that humans were affected by coronaviruses before 1960s, and we just simply couldn't record that and study that scientifically. Now, since 1960, we are seeing More and more coronaviruses in humans, our ability to detect coronaviruses in humans is increasing. And since 2002, we started seeing certain lineages, certain groups of coronaviruses like SARS-CoV, MERS-CoV, and now SARS-CoV-2 that infect humans and can cause, they are deadly, they can cause major disease in humans. So that makes us pay much more attention to these groups of viruses now.
1: Okay, so what's the aim of your research? What are you trying to figure out?
2: Well, back in 2020, a colleague of ours, Dr. Jan Wenzel, he noted that in this rush to understand coronaviruses that threaten human life, human health, many authors of prominent papers, they had performed phylogenetic analysis. Those are the evolutionary analysis for us to understand how viruses change over time that were not to the standard of the field today. There were many errors that he identified, including the faulty placement of the root of phylogeny, which is the starting point of our evolutionary analysis, which is required for everything else to function. There was also frequent use of outdated methods of reconstruction. Reconstruction is the word that we use to say, drawing the tree of life quotes of viruses. Also, poor taxon sampling, so just not enough uh, data in the analysis. And appropriate emphasis on only functional elements instead of using uh, the whole genome of those viruses, and also inadequate consideration of ambiguous data. And I, I talked a lot with Dr. Wenzel about this. And I then had this idea together with Professor Janis that we should try to come together and produce a, a paper that. Resolved the fundamental origins of coronaviruses in a way that we would avoid those errors, and also we would comment on those errors and provide solutions so that this the scientific community studying this subject could learn from this and use the tools we were making available to them for
0: future research. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes
1: okay so you're what you're helping to identify variants and why like use computers to catalog or to determine if they are, would be hazardous to human health? Or I, I don't understand. What are you doing?
2: So, put together an analysis that contained 2006 complete genomes of coronaviruses, and this data set became what is to date the most comprehensive and diverse data set of coronaviruses in an evolutionary study. Those coronaviruses represented different genera of coronaviruses, including those that do not infect humans which is required so that we can understand how all of them evolved together. From that analysis of this 2006 complete genomes, we try to ask what were the origins of each coronaviruses that infect humans throughout time. We, we wanted to know how frequent it is for coronaviruses to change from one host to another, and we wanted to understand how likely it would be for that to happen again. There were other questions that were very important to us, including understanding how how those viruses change over time, and whether or not studying the changes of those viruses gene per gene was something that was important for our analysis. So, putting together this analysis tries to understand all of these zoonotic transmission events, and it answers key questions that are required for us to. Continue research on coronaviruses.
1: Okay, so are you going to be releasing a report of what you found, or is all your work preparatory?
2: So, this analysis called Fundamental Evolution of All Ortho-Coronavirini, including three deadly lineages descended from Chiroptera hosted coronaviruses, which are SARS CoV, MERS CoV, and SARS CoV 2, was published on the journal Cladistics uh, in April this year. And all of the data is publicly available including all the protocols that we used to put this analysis together. We provided the first strategy, the first outlines for us to annotate those complete genomes and include this data from different genes together in the same phylogenomic analysis and to uh, total evidence context, which means that we try to use as much information from these genomes at the same time in a way that it has never been done before. And as a result, this was the most comprehensive evolutionary analysis of those coronaviruses that were published until today.
1: So what are some of the key learnings of what you found so far?
2: There were many important things that we learned from from this project. Maybe the first thing that I would point out would be that when we look to the number of transformation events, the number of times that coronaviruses jump from one host to another, That number is very high. It's very frequent that coronaviruses uh, of of different species of coronaviruses will go from one host to another host, especially within mammals. And looking into the number of transformations, the number of times that one host starts to become the source of viruses to another host, that is, that revealed to us a scenario that very much looked like a, a very complex highway or a very complex map of systems of highways and roads, in which some of the less traveled roads in that complex system, the, in that complex map, some of the less complex roads are more important to humans. And we were able to identify what were those most complex roads. So once we know, we learned that the number of transformation events was very, very frequent, we could zoom in and ask questions about, okay, so which road did V took to infect humans? And chiropter was the fundamental source, bats. Uh, chiropter, by chiropter, I mean bats. Bats were the fundamental source for mers for example. And the data shows that a, a bat host was the source of a virus that infected a uh, uh, dromedary camel first and then infected humans. And that the number of times that dromedary camels and humans exchange viruses, the number of times they jump, through the, uh, they jump over this fence, between hosts that was so frequent and it happened so fast that it's very likely that the virus that came from bats was already capable of infecting both of those hosts and it was not that camels actually worked as an intermediary host but just that the virus that came from bats was already capable of infecting a range of hosts susceptible hosts including humans and camels we also learned that another another virus Called 229E is another coronavirus that is less important to human health, also came from from bats. Bats directly gave humans coronavirus in L63, SARS CoV, and SARS CoV 2 as well. And with that, I thought that, it, like, wasn't,
1: that wasn't proven with uh, that SARS CoV 2 that it came from bats. From what I had understood, China tested hundreds of thousands of bats and other sources, and there was no link yet. So it's all open the question. evidence.
2: All the evidence points out for SARS-CoV-2 coming from a bat host. This, the, the natural source of the virus is a bat. We don't have any possibility to explain the origins of coronaviruses right now fought that type of evidence. Now, what is interesting about phylogenetic analysis and this type of evolutionary analysis that we do is that this is the type of analysis that allows us to ask how things change over time based on a special kind of similarity, similarities that are shared among organisms, due to their common evolutionary history. It is very common, however, that people try to answer questions about the origins of coronaviruses based on similarity analysis or analysis that were too much focused on only some key functional aspects of the genome of SARS-CoV-2. Now, those analyses are not capable to evaluate evolutionary origins of the viruses. Today, unless I am terribly mistaken. Most of the articles we have studying the phylogenomics of coronaviruses point out to bats as the natural source of SARS-CoV-2. So bats are, they were the fundamental source of SARS-CoV-2, SARS-CoV and another coronavirus called NL63. And they were also indirectly related with uh, the emergency, uh, the emergence of 229E and MERS-CoV in the human populations. And there is no scientific evidence today to dispute that hypothesis. We may change that hypothesis if new data is, is provided to us, but based on all the data that's available to the public right now, it, I cannot come to any other conclusion rather than SARS-CoV-2 came from bats.
1: But so far as I know, there is no event linking it. Right now, it's just a hypothesis. Again, have they found the actual new zoonotic event?
2: Oh, yes. Yeah. So what, what you're now talking is not the fundamental evolution, but actually the epidemiological event. So those are two different things. One thing is for us to locate what was patient zero, where that actually happened, uh, what was the person that first got infected. And we may or may not find that. It's possible that we will never know for sure the exact moment in which that virus jumped to the human population just because we don't know that information from many other viruses. It's not a simple task and we don't have uh, complete data for us to go back to. Okay, so what,
1: what What do you see going forward then over the next six months or a year in terms of the evolution of your understanding? Do you feel like you're close on any uh, part of it?
2: Well, there is, there is unless very much new information comes from sequencing the virome of the wildlife that may contain other, let's say, cousins of SARS-CoV-2, and that gives us more information about other viruses more closely related to SARS-CoV-2 than what we have right now, it is very unlikely that we're going to reach to any other conclusion whether than SARS-CoV-2 came from bats. This is not to say our analysis does not allow us to, to answer, for example, but did it came from a bat that was, uh, a virus from a bat that was taken to, from, a, to a lab and then escaped from a lab? We, we, we cannot evaluate that with phylogenomics. This is, this, this would be more detective work that would require testimonies and, and records from the lab and cannot be recovered from the genomic data that we have available right now. But what I can say is. I see is what that. you
1: mean. You could say that it, it, it very much looks like. Came from a bat, but the event in which it went from bat to person, that we probably we may never know.
2: Precisely. <laughs> That's why I love watching your show. You always have these clever comments. Yes. Thank you very much for, for helping me getting there. So when we have this question about about the origin of coronavirus, we now have kind of four questions wrapped together. So the first one is, what's is it from natural source? And if so, what is that natural source? Then what was the accident that happened? right, that, that led to that first human being infected by SARS-CoV-2? And then was that actually an accident or was that on purpose? And did that accident occur in nature? Like it was an accident that occurred like in a cave somewhere or did it occur in the lab? All of those questions I have to wrap together when we talk about origins. As a phylogeneticist, I, I I cannot investigate questions about whether or not it came from an accident in the lab. I can tell you that the only way that I can explain the genome of SARS-CoV-2 is if I explain it as something that evolved from the natural, from the natural world, something that wasn't created by humans. And I also so if can... You, um, more... oh, if, sorry. if you
1: look back in the, in the phylogenetic tree, does that match with the geographic spread of it? Or are there differences? Or is anyone looking at, again, all right, phylogenetics shows that this is the path of the variant expression but you know geographically it makes sense or doesn't make sense
2: yeah sure it does make sense however i must say that it, 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 there would be no way for it to, to do not make sense based on the samples that we have because you see the original se- sequences of SARS-CoV-2 they came from a certain geographic area and the original samples of the viruses from bats that are more closely related to SARS-CoV-2 also came from that phylogenographic area. So there was not a lot of possibility for us to find any other, any other resolution to that. Well, what is interesting about our, our analysis is that it places bats as this, as this direct fundamental source, natural source of the virus. And although we cannot use a phylogenomic tree of coronaviruses, to ask whether or not it came from, uh, it came from a lab accident. That's, that's completely lost to me. I know that no matter how that accident occurred, and no matter if that accident occurred in a lab or in, in the wild, that accident involved a bat. The virus, the, the original virus came from a bat. By showing that bats were the fundamental source of so many important coronaviruses in humans, this also helps us placing bats, ranking bats, as the first priority in continuing research on coronaviruses.
1: Is there a uh, back and forth interaction, though? I mean, you know, so a zoonotic event may have happened here, you know, either, again, accidental from a lab or direct transmission. But what about, uh, you know, an infected person then interacting with a bat again and then passing it back to the bats, I mean, back to the people, and back to the bats, back to, you know, does that happen?
2: We don't know, but I, I love that you asked me that. Because I'm trying to use our paper to show that th- this question that you just asked is, is so relevant to us right now. And we should know the answer for this. And for us to know the answer for this, we need continuing uh, research rather than reactionary research on coronaviruses and other viruses that infect wildlife. One of the reasons why it's so hard to evaluate where SARS-CoV-2 and other coronavirus came from it's because we have a terrible sample bias in which we, we really don't have a lot of data from viruses collected in, in, in wild animals. And we should have more of that information. We should start discussing about making natural history museums and other such collections more readily available sources of data for biomedical and epidemiological research on viruses because that can help us either prevent or respond faster to future pandemics, and also do not waste precious time and resources over like confusing discussions about the origins of those viruses.
1: What do you notice uh, phylogenetically when when you know there's a zoonotic event? You know it's been proven for whatever virus. Mm-hmm. What happens to in the initial? You know phy- phylogenetically, what's happening when the event first occurs? Versus when now it's a, there's a transmission chain in the new organism, meaning like you know, I'm just I know this probably doesn't happen. A bat now I interact with a bat and I get some some illness from it, some virus. So I'm not, I label myself number one. What happens phylogenetically at the number you know, zero to one jump versus maybe 20 to 21 to jump? You know, what, mm-hmm. what does it look phylogenetically again once it takes hold? And then
2: when we are doing a phylogenomic analysis or in any evolutionary tree analysis. One of the fantastic things we can do is trace back what were the changes that on the genome that likely occurred in each branch. So we can go back and, and ask what were the specific differences or mutations that happened in that branch that connects the wildlife with uh, what happened next. So in the case of something that came from bats and now infects humans, we were going to have a group of viruses and bats in bats and a line connecting that group to virus that infects humans. And in that line, we can trace back to that line what were the key transformations, the key mutations that occurred there. However, there is a problem. I don't, uh, if you remember, I told you that one of the problems in studying the evolution of viruses is the way that ambiguities and, 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 and annotation is performed. So it's very common in the analysis of viruses that would not include outgroups. That means we do not include something that we are not immediately interested in. If we are interested in SARS-CoV-2, we just analyze SARS-CoV-2. And that is problematic because phylogenetic systematics out- requires us to have an out-group and that will affect the hypothesis of relationships within the in-group, which is what we are interested in. So one of the things we, are t- we tried to do in our paper was to show the advantages of you always including outgroup sequences in your analysis so that you could precisely understand things like, for example, exactly which mutations occurred when there was a change from one virus to the other. And if you don't follow a total evidence approach in which you annotate a different g- genes of the genome and you use all of that information together, it becomes increasingly harder for you to evaluate which transformations led to uh, disinfection. Of human hosts,
1: but again, once it's in human hosts, uh, do viruses tend to go in a certain direction? Do they become less virulent and more transmissible? You know, if they become more virulent. I guess it would burn itself out. But you know, do they have a tendency to go anywhere to progress to anything?
2: So our analysis right now does not involve, for example, any research about where is SARS-CoV-2 going to. We have not yet studied in depth the different variants of SARS-CoV-2 and how the genome is uh, uh, changing within the human population. This is ongoing research. But what we have done that is very useful to this type of research is we have learned that there is a, a change in how viruses mutate and accumulate change depending on the species of the virus and depending on the host and depending on the gene. So let's talk about this in the most simple term. Let's talk about change over time, just little sequence, little molecules changing the genome over time. And what I'm saying is that it's not that we can predict how many changes will occur in the entire genome, because what we see is that the patterns, the likelihood of a change is different depending on what is the species of the virus and which gene I'm talking about. So if the changes are different per gene, that means that we have to understand these mutation rates, the way that those, those, those viruses are changing, is studying each of their genes at a time. We have to work as, as if they were different units, and we cannot assume that the process of evolution in one gene is the same for the entire genome. And because that is true, that also means that translational research is a bit hard with coronavirus. So by translational research, I mean, imagine that we, there are some coronaviruses that we understand way better because they have been around for longer and there has been longer, to, uh, uh, longer research on those viruses like HKU1.
1: Why would you assume that within a single entity? Is- so you just-
2: so you, your okay. question is, why would someone assume that those changes were random and the same throughout the genome? And the answer is, I don't know why someone would assume that. But that was one of the common mistakes that we frequently see on the literature that tries to understand the evolution of these viruses. And one... Well,
1: other creatures, I mean, you know, the creature kind of adapts and it's not like one gene changes and then nothing else is affected. Or, you know, I mean, if you believe things are random, yes, I I don't. But uh, Mm -hmm. I believe it's a deliberate adaptation. And I believe that extends to viruses. But I think it may be a mistake to look at the genes in isolation. I would look at, I guess, the interplay of all of them. And what's changing and what's changing along with a change in gene number three, let's say. If you look at them individually, I think you're deliberately blinding yourself to to looking at a virus as an organism. You know, again, either alive, half alive or dead or not alive. But uh, I don't know it just it just doesn't seem like it would be independent, random like that.
2: No, precisely. I believe that let's put those two together, because I think that I, I agree 100 percent with what you're saying. And I believe that when I finish my explanation, you will agree with what I'm saying as well. Well, let's see. So what I'm saying is that when we are studying the genomes of those coronaviruses, we need to look into all of the genes. We need to understand that the way that they change over time may not be the same. They may not be changing. Like different parts of the genome may not be changing the same way because they are under different uh, adaptative pressures. They have different functions. So they are not one single unit that operates with just the one single rule. However, to understand how those things operate, we need to look at the whole picture, understanding that the parts move by themselves a little bit, you know. So there, there, are, there are specific characteristics that each gene has. And for us to understand that, we have to understand how those characteristics uh, affect each other for the entire genome. So for us to allow that to happen within a phylogenetic context, what we are advocating is that we have to annotate all the genome locate what what are each of the genes in, in, in the genome of the coronaviruses. And once we have that information, uh, then we start asking, okay, so now that we have all of this data, let's first understand how those things evolve together, putting as much information together at the same time, because that will, uh, will do something that I called augmenting the explanatory power of the analysis that will give us a better understanding of what the data is saying by looking at everything. But by allowing me to to look into the particularities of each gene, I can also say, okay, the spike protein accumulates mutations at different rates depending on the domain of the spike protein. And that protein does not change as fast as other proteins in the genome. And there is a reason why that happens. And I want to understand that reason. And once I understand how that works in SARS-CoV-2, and for example, I understand how that works in HKU1, I know that now I have two different coronaviruses that infect human popu- the human population. And in one, vi- in one group of virus, we are not seeing increasing vir- virulence. We are not seeing uh, more concerning variants uh, appearing all the time. But in the other group, we have these new uh, deadly, more deadly variants that are caused for more, more concern. I, I shouldn't say more deadly, but more causes, causes more concern because it's easier for them to infect humans, right?
1: Again, infection doesn't necessarily mean severity of infection.
2: Oh, so your point is that uh, current research should be focusing on different aspects of, of the variants, focusing on, at the same time, on, on one end, we want to understand infection rates, and the other hand, we want to understand the severity of symptoms and so forth.
1: Not to the absurd, but if, if there's a virus that has incredibly high infectivity, infectivity rate, but it really, doesn't really do much to people, who cares? But if you don't differentiate those two, then you could say, oh, my God, this new variant, it's, it's spreading like crazy. But is it more deadly? Is it less deadly? Is it the same? And if you don't say that, you don't look at that, then you could possibly lead people to be afraid of something they shouldn't be afraid uh-huh. of. Or you may be under, under understating the threat. Maybe, um, you know, the transmissibility uh, increases slightly, but the deadliness increases uh, 10x. Uh-huh. So, what's the real point there? The important point, maybe, is the deadliness. So, I just think, I it, it, you know, there should be more details around it. Otherwise, it just, I think, it just leads to confusion and fear. This,
2: this is a bit of a digression from my original work. So, remember, please, that I don't have anything published on the evolution of the, the variants of SARS-CoV-2 specifically. But know that, for example, there there are there are a lot of research on 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 that that considers that. And for example, that's how we know that uh, the Delta variant is not necessarily more deadly, but because it's so much easier for people to get infected, it also means that there will be more people that that will get the virus, and therefore more people will be likely to develop symptoms because of that infection. And that's one of the examples in which it's not exactly that it's more deadly because the symptoms tend to be the same, but it's just more easy for people to get it. Uh, so if it's easier for people to get it, that's that can be a problem. Now, again, because my research is not focused on that, what I can say from my research is the following. I can say that although we know how one type of virus like HK1 evolved in the human population very well, we understand that system, there is a limit to how much we can transfer of information from that system to SARS-CoV-2 because not, not there is a, a, a different way in which those genomes are changing. And they are not only changing in different ways as a whole, but also each gene appears to, 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 to mutate in different rates in the same genome. So in the same genome, mutation rates will vary across different genes, which is something that's very important if we are considering translational research with coronaviruses.
1: I, I just have the feeling, I, I don't know, because I'm not involved in the research, but I have a feeling it will be very, very important to look at... You know, what happens, what changes occur, et cetera, when, again, it first hits a new species, when it first jumps to whatever, to a bat, from a bat, to a camel, to a person, if possible. Because I would think that the uh, the rate of change of, you know, this gene or that gene or of the whole organism will change. Initially, it may be very rapid, and I would think maybe it would slow down or go along different lines. I don't really hear from anyone that they're looking at that.
2: Oh, that's interesting for me to hear that. Maybe because I'm working and I have access to people that are doing research on that, but it's not necessarily published. I I know of different groups uh, and different labs that are uh, making that question right now. Uh, Our team at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte, recently we put a preprint out with a, a coronavirus dashboard. And from that point on, we are trying to study exactly how to classify and understand the different variants of coronaviruses. But when it comes to this particular question of what were the mutations, what were the changes, the specific things that changed when you jump from one host to another, our analysis that it was published in April discusses that we can we can from that paper we, we, we can see exactly what were the mutations, what were the modifications that allowed it to jump from one host to another and the problem is but- that from that we cannot make predictions we We, we even caution the reader. That's really in our paper that we cannot make predictions about when and how a new uh, uh, coronavirus will emerge in the human population. But we caution the reader that we should prepare for that possibility because we can recognize these clades, these groups of viruses that are similar to SARS CoV 2, that have similar original hosts, bats as SARS CoV 2, that have contacted the human population, and they are potential. Uh, sources of new infections in humans.
1: But what general trends, so you say you work with people or know people, at least in the industry, that are looking at these questions. So are there any general patterns? Not Variation so doesn't necessarily increase when it first goes to a new organism. There's no discernible pattern at all yet.
2: There are indeed changes that need to occur for one virus to go from one host to another. These changes are, we understand that those changes have to happen, to allow the virus to uh, be efficient in infecting a new host. However, those changes are not the same. What we would like to do now would be to increase the amount of data that we have from viruses that are from animal sources. And if we do that and we create a sufficiently large database of those changes, perhaps eventually we can, if not exactly predict what change will lead to a new human infection, we will at least be capable to see, okay, this particular pattern, although it's not unique, this pattern we observed before and it may lead to a problem later on. So now we can flag this group of viruses from this animal host as a group of interest. And we can follow what's going on there.
0: Well,
1: also, too, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I wouldn't think that someone's just infected with one specific, well, let's say, you know, for SARS-CoV-2, one specific RNA sequence. I would think they'd be infected by a whole bunch of quasi-species, all with their own differences. So you're not really infected by one monolithic thing. I would think you'd be affected by a whole host of variants. And I would guess they would compete. And then you'd have a, you know, a resulting profile that looks different after it passes through the organism for a while.
2: Yes, that is correct. In fact, the fact that one host can be infected by different viruses at the same time is what allows something that is called recombination. So uh, genome recombination occurs when several viruses are infecting the same host cell. And let's say that they end up in the process of trying to replicate themselves they end up by mistake exchanging pieces in bits between them. And most of the times those exchanges will not going to lead to a, a fully functional virus and they will just not help the virus in any way. Other times it may lead to something that makes the virus more effective into infecting its host or maybe makes the virus more deadly. The more a virus circulates and the more a person is exposed to different quasi-species of or variants or lineages of the same virus, the more likely it is, although it's always unlikely, the more likely it is for recombination events to occur, which is one potential source of variation in the viral genome that can lead to new lineages of viruses. So you are absolutely correct. We have to always think about those viruses not as a one monolithic thing, but as a very complex group of genomes that are somewhat similar to each other. They share some, some characteristics that are the same, but not everything is identical.
1: So what, what's the best place for people to find out more about your research? You know, where can they go? And um, what do you think is ahead for the next six months or a year with your research as well?
2: Oh, so first things first, um, to, to reach me out and see what I'm doing and read my papers and all that, perhaps the easiest way to do that is go to about.me, uh, about.me, slash machado.dj, that's M-A-C-H-A-G-O, which is one of my last names, Machado DJ for Dennis Jacquabi. So, about me.machado DJ. And from there, you can find everything, including uh, Dr. Janice's lab, which is available at Janice's Lab. That's J A N I E S Lab.github.io. In the next few months, we are going to be producing a review on what we learn about genomic surveillance. Of coronaviruses, the lessons learned during the pandemic, and what is our advice to the scientific community. We are also going to be diving much deeper into the evolution of the different variants of SARS CoV 2. So far, the paper that we have produced helps us to clear out any questions or doubts about the natural origin of SARS CoV, for example, and the batch as its fundamental animal source. It also helps to clarify the origins of all the other human coronaviruses and what are their animal sources. And by looking at the data together, we can see that, okay, so bats, bats are a very important component here. They, they are frequently the sources of those viruses. Um, so we have to pay special attention to that. And we are trying at jenny's Lab to, at all opportunity, uh, including talking to you, and I appreciate that very much to discuss the importance of paying attention to this methodology that we used in this paper to avoid the errors that I delineated later earlier. Because, for example, even today, you could find people saying that SARS-CoV came from, from CIVETs, came from for example. Although Professor Janis had published a paper in 2008 clarifying why that was a technical mistake and the hypothesis was fundamentally flawed. And although nobody could criticize his work he was correct and we continue corroborating his research it seems that it was very hard for that to become something that was widely understood by the scientific community here so we are trying to do our best to communicate our research this time and to clarify the importance of bats as as sources animal sources for uh, deadly human
1: coronavirus well very good well thank you for coming on the podcast i appreciate it
0: thank you so much for having me if you like this podcast